Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Antipa, Antipa, which is of course Arabic for Achtung, Achtung. Um, I don't know. I know we've had Arabic on before, but you try coming up with new languages when you're into your third century of podcasts. Blimey. And anyway, if you're downloading, I know we're 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 well past the double ton. Um, uh, anyway, if you are downloading this on the day of publication, it's November the tenth. But what happened on November the tenth, Uncle Al? I hear you cry. Well, Winston <laughs> Churchill attended the Lord Mayor's lunch in London and uttered these words. Now, it's not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. It is perhaps the end of the beginning. And why did he say this? Because we were on the cusp of winning the Battle of El Alamein. Oh, we'd won it. Shattering. Won it by then. Well, we'd, we'd won it, but we'd, we'd won. Yeah, we'd won Completely it. Completely won it. No, but, that's, know, that's, well, that's, that's Operation Torch, isn't it? Tempor, tempor, well, it de- yes. It depends, though, when you regard winning Alamein as, as you know. Is it when Rommel's in full flight? Or is it the end of the actual grinding encounter? And if you think if you're a Monty's too slow man, you think hey, he doesn't win at Alamein anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say though, of all Churchill's rhetoric, and you know I'm a big, big fan. I think that is just yeah. the biggest load of guff. Anything it just doesn't mean anything, does it? No, of course not. No, and there, there's stories of people um, on the eve of D-Day, Americans taking the piss of it out of it. You know, um, this is not even the end of the beginning of the beginning of the end, and all this. You know, the, uh, and Milligan's is we begin the Beguine and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, but I mean, but but you know, church bells rang, and uh, you know, it was a big thing. It was a big thing. They captured Von Tommer. Um, yeah. Well, in a big proper victory on schedule as well. It wasn't like we weren't caught out by it either. It wasn't one where you go, "Oh, we won that. That's nice." Yeah. It was things things going according to plan. I think is the thing that yes. characterises Alamein. Yes. Uh, that you've 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 come up with an answer. You've figured out how to make the army you've got work. Yeah. And you've lured you've lured the desert fox into a trap, haven't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, is it, I, I, you haven't been there, have you? Or have you? I can't remember. Okay, it is a really amazing place because it actually in the, in the kind of, sort of forty miles of the of the Alamein line from from the coast all the way down to the Qatar Depression, the landscape does change quite a lot. Um, and one of the things that's really noticeable is up near the north, it's much sandier. There's quite a lot of vetch and stuff, but it is really the soil and, and the sand is much finer. Whereas further down towards uh, El Haimat. Um, Hemimat is the which is this sort of weird odd feature that just sticks up just on the edge of the Katara Depression. It's much much stonier. So in other words, the going is much better for um, for for armor and and you know I think it's ten core isn't it is the is the corps de chasse as he calls it. Um, and um, it's odd that that he chooses as his primary slot where he chooses. And it's also a very, very odd use of artillery because he's got these, whatever it is, 850 guns or whatever it is, I can't quite remember. But only about a third of them are in line with the main assault bit. The rest of them are sort of spread out across the whole line. And they're also just firing straight ahead. So you've got all these guns. So, you know, there's lots of accounts of people kind of seeing the opening barrage of Al Alamein and people flying overhead and seeing it and this sort of streak of fire cutting across the land and all the rest of it. But what they're not doing is firing in concentrations. And it's it's, it's a really, really odd fire plan because what you'd have thought they would do is you'd have... Say, I can't remember precisely what the guns are, but let's just say for argument's sake, it is 850, that you would have maybe 650 in that top corridor and then... The other 200 sort of spread a little bit further down as a sort of, you know, as a sort of deception. And you'd have those 600 all pummeling kind of, I don't know, 500 metres of line. Well, so doing stonks, basically. Doing, doing massive stonks, stonks on one area. Yeah. And then going yeah. on to the next one and then going on to the next one. But actually what you've got yeah. is one, each gun is just firing straight ahead. Yeah. And so that's why the minefields aren't as destroyed as they are and the mine isn't. And it's exactly the same issue that they have in the First World War, really. So why has he got that fire plan? I don't what, know, what, because, I not... th- because I think this is, this is where Monty... Well, because one of the big reorganisations is in artillery, isn't it? That they've got their, they have got their act together organisationally in terms of command by that point, haven't yes. they? Yes, yeah. Um, far more in Eighth Army than, the, than they had up to that point. And, it, and it's, you know, the great arguments about Montgomery arriving in the desert is he inherits things, systems that are that are revolving and in place and you know he's 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 lucky to turn up when he does because he gets things he arrives when things are actually beginning to click properly yes which is which is true but also kind of no i don't think it is point. true actually i don't think well, it it's is. Uh, true to an extent isn't it that uh, they are they are they are getting their shit together far far more by the end of the year aren't they but by, no, by but, this well, time well in the in the july battles for the, uh, the first battle of Alamein is in july when when um yeah. when Eighth Army streaming back. They've also they've already got some divisions in reserve, so they can already kind of hit in the line. The rest of Eighth yeah. Army gets behind the Alamein line, which has already been yeah. prepared. So it's in you know it's in reasonable order. 
Then Rommel comes in, and the first first battle of um, the first sort of main assaults, I think, is around the sort of fifth, sixth of July, off the top of my head, yeah. nineteen forty-two, and um, uh, an Orkinlex. Eighth Army. He's now taken over direct command, as well as yeah. being commander in chief of the Middle East. He's also Eighth Army commander as well, um, having sacked Ritchie, and um, he manages to hold the uh, the Germans. And then he goes slightly on the counterattack in the second half of July. And what happens yeah. is, is this kind of sort of big bloody attritional fight where kind of no one really wins, but it does sort of buy them time. What you, I, I think the only thing that has changed in July is that his lines of supply are shorter. And that Rommel's, yeah. having charged all the way across the north of, of Egypt and come from Tobruk and having been involved in this battle, heavy battle without much replenishment in May and June 1942, yeah. is, is kind of, you know, they're just a bit spent. So I think that is why. I, I don't think there's anything new, really, about what Orkinlek is doing that's different from, from Ritchie and co. I think what you see in, in, in August when, when Montgomery and Alexander turn up it, you know, it's Alexander, head of Montgomery, who goes, right, there will be no more retreats. And there aren't, yeah, actually, yeah. bar yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, Arnhem and stuff like that and crossing back over, yeah. the, over the river. Um, basically, there are, there are no major retreats at all. It's always going forward. And, and I think that whole mindset thing completely changes. And there is a kind of whole re- restructuring and reorganisation that then goes on in that interregnum period. And that is the whole yeah. point after Alam Halfa, which is the end of August, beginning of September 1942, up until the kind of third week of October, when Alamein, the Second Battle of Alamein is launched by Montgomery, that that period, that kind of seven week period, is all about retraining, re-equipping, bringing in the Shermans, yeah. you know, a bit more Shermans, kind of getting yeah, yourself yeah. all sorted and all the rest of it. And and I think where where Montgomery excels is in that operational level. I think where he's always a bit wanting is on the on the tactical level. And I think that the the, the tactical. Uh, shortcomings of Montgomery are revealed at the Battle of Alamein because although it is a yeah. great victory and a notable victory, actually it should have taken a it should have been a lot quicker and a lot easier, really, compared yeah. to what he's got. And yes, and but that's also is. him. But that's also him thinking in terms of what he can do with this army that he's got, what he can actually do with it, um, what it's actually capable of, and 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 you know the, 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 the tactical shortcomings if you want or is it a is it is it the the, it, the his notorious caution to protect his men's lives which you know we the, 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 these things are you can explain them kind of uh satisfactorily in either in either direction can't you you can well, say it's him being yeah. cautious or you can uh, and he's being cautious because he knows what he knows what he knows what eighth army's capable of what it, and what it isn't capable of and he's not going to try and do things that go wrong so that the, the, so that his men lose confidence in him so it's the, the, the you know that the, the it's that sort of conundrum isn't it if he sets them an impossible task that they're not up to and they fail in it then that that damages you know his his relationship as their commander and all that sort of thing which he's seen happen again and again and again he's obviously been paying attention to what's been going on in the desert and that's what's been going on or the whole british army's been watching because after all the desert is the experimental um, theatre, if you want, for a couple of years, where you get to fight the Germans and figure out how to beat them, and they and they they they, they spend two years failing to figure that out, don't they? Really? Um, yes. Well, uh, to a certain extent, um, to a certain extent. I mean, there are some successes in that, of course. Don't forget. Yeah, but but but, but, the, but the success but the successes are never the things you learn from, are they? Yeah. Um. Uh, g- generally, you, the, 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 they're the things that make you make rash. Rash could, you know, if you look at the Germans, they don't learn from their successes particularly, do they? They they then go and double down on the things that they think one one things for them and uh 
Montgomery must know. He, he he must know if I try and do things too 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 snazzy with Eighth Army, it won't work, and we will get stuck here. And if we get stuck here, I mean, he's not just worried about his own job. He's obviously worried about you know command because after all, being a general at this point, you're eminently fireable because Churchill's into firing generals at this stage of the war. Um, it's quite happy to do it. So, I don't know. I just sort of think. Yeah, Is no, he... I just I just remember when I was trying. I just think there's a there's a problem with the fire plan because it's straight ahead. And I think, you know, yeah, his 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 head of um, his his CRA um, should have known better. And frankly, he yeah. should have done. I mean, you know, you fire concentrations, you don't fire straight ahead. So I think that's, I yeah. think that is, that is putting your, your men's lives at greater risk because you're not going to destroy as much of the enemy defences as you might do if you fire concentrations. I think the second problem yeah. is that it's just the main line of attack is too far north. So you've got uh, yeah. in the enemy minefields, you've got these minefields and then you've got this weird arm that extends back westwards, which divides yeah, yeah. the line in two. And as, as a rule of thumb, it's not absolutely the case, but most of the Italians are in the southern bit under that line. And, yeah. and and most of the Germans, most of the Panzer uh, Panzer Corps, um, Africa Corps rather, is is in the northern yeah. bit. So you don't want to go south of that line because then you're going to have to work your way all the way around it, yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. going to be a pain yeah. in the ass and difficult. So you do want to be in that northern bit. But I would have said you wanted to the main line, having walked the ground, it would have been more sensible to to attack just above that northern line. And I know yeah. why he didn't. It's because he wanted to go there and then exploit either side. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the problem is is that ground in that northern bit is is so much finer and you've got these very very narrow channels which are mm. going across you've got these three holes that are being punched i think it's three or was it two yeah. they're being punched through the minefields so your 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 armor is and infantry and armor are following behind and what it yeah. turns into is basically talcum powder a massive dust just coating everything coating the engines coating the eyes getting in the lungs and noses of absolutely everybody and the going is really really tough Whereas yeah. had they gone a little bit further south, just in the north of this 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 kind of sort of east-west line of mines, which sort of divides the two going westwards, then they would have had much firmer ground because it's much stonier. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been ground yeah. up and it wouldn't have been quite so dusty. That's yeah. my, Those are my, my criticisms. But it's not my, these are mild criticisms because it is a great victory. There's no question about it. And I think actually where, and I've said it a hundred times before, you know, where I think Monty really, really scores points is, is in that kind of no-nonsense kind of operational level understanding the limitation of your men all that kind of stuff i think that's just invaluable and there is a kind of sort of you know no one is any question about who is in charge and that has been the big problem with um with eighth army ever since its inception the previous autumn that who is in charge has been slightly up for grabs and there's been too many people kind of you know it's been taking their own initiative and and, yeah 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 but but not doing it in in cahoots you know they're not all singing from the same hymn sheet uh, the other thing about uh, about this period of the war, though, is is that you are now getting the American kit coming in too. Yeah. So 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 it's the beginning. I mean, in in the you know Churchill sense of it, the beginning a big beginning of the end. It's certainly it's certainly taking on the uh, um the framework and the character of how it's going to end, which is that is that the American material might is now coming into play. Yeah. Which is maybe what. Maybe what Churchill's referring to is the thing he knows that maybe other people don't know quite to such an extent. You know, this is the first proper round of shipping. And, um, you know, it's the, 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 uh, we talked to Dan Tobin about this, about the Shermans that are mm. available in, in El Alamein. They're like rushed ahead of the, of the conventional shipping and there's a diversion to the shipping made yeah. to make that happen. And it's, so, it's, so maybe 
I mean, it's it's notable for that too, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, the other thing that Montgomery does in this battle, and it's you know, this is the this is the frustrating thing with him as as his own chronicler. Is he says it all went according to plan. It didn't. No. All go according to plan, but he did manage to adapt to it, and having to change. Um, uh, what he was doing to how it was turning out. Yes. Which, of course, is always the problem with Montgomery. He goes, everything went according to plan. You think, <laughs> well, uh, uh, you know, you're doing yourself down as a general here. You know, you ran into a you ran into a hitch, into a roadblock in what you were trying to do, and you worked your way around it. You managed to get your army to f- work its way around it, and your men were up to that, and your divisional commanders were up to that, and your b- brigade and uh, uh, battalion commanders were up to the, that task. That That... And this is, of course, the British army that supposedly lacks initiative, that supposedly doesn't doesn't think for itself, that only does what's in its orders. And here he is actually, and, and you know, and in 1942, especially when it's not got the professionalism that it has at the end of 1944 into 45, you know, where where it's all been shaken down and everyone's everyone's super seasoned in combat by by Christmas of 44, you know, that 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 actually here you have here you have the thing that the British are always accused of being incapable of. Which is being flexible, being being tactically and operationally able to sort of step around what's not working for you, and all those sort of things. And he's doing he's doing all that. You know, he's walking, talking, and chewing gum at the same time, which is what generals have not been able to do up to this point. Yes, and and he's a very visible general as well, which is the other thing that's very important. And I think what is interesting between Lightfoot and and Supercharger, which are the two kind of phases of the battle, you know, Lightfoot is sort of grinding down to a kind of sort of to to a halt, and and it needs a whole kind of sort of change of approach. It hasn't been the big breakthrough that he hoped. Yeah, Uh, and Alexander comes up. And and sees where he's planning supercharge and thinks it's it thinks it's not in the right place, but knows better than to say to Monty that's in the wrong place. You need to change it. Yeah. So he has a yeah. quiet word with Freddie de Gangan and goes, "You might want to suggest that perhaps this might be a, a slightly more advantageous yeah. way of doing it." So de Gangan goes, "I wonder, sir, wonder, sir, you know whether maybe we should do do it this way." And he goes, "You know what? That's quite, that, that yes, I, I I was thinking that already," uh, and then yeah. changes it and takes all the credit, which of course is fine because you know he's Monty and. That that's what he always does. Um, I think the other thing that's really interesting <laughs> about that 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 period is is that y- you know when when um, Mary Cunningham, the, you know the commander of the Desert Air Force, is is going to Auckland, you know it'd be a really good thing if we could have our headquarters together, our tactical headquarters together. And Auckland takes quite a dim view of that. Uh, and then yep. when Montgomery turns up, Cunningham says, "I really think it's a good idea if we have you know Desert Air Force headquarters and A Army headquarters, uh, you know, are, are in the same place." Monty goes, "Absolutely, hundred percent." Uh, and Monty just yeah. gets the importance of, of air power and how air power can be harnessed to, to what you're doing on the ground. He really understands that. And, and I wonder whether that's also because Montgomery's fought in France and seen how the Luftwaffe do it yeah. with the Germans, whereas um, Auchinleck has been in Norway, but you know, it's not quite the same thing, you know, but yeah, in yeah, northern yeah. Norway. Hasn't had quite that exposure, Indian Army man, all the rest of it, where you don't really, you know, there's no such thing as sort of tactical air power in 1942. Yeah. And, 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 you know, so, so you see this development. First of all, you see... Um, Desert Air Force absolutely hammering um, the Panzer Army Africa uh, at the Gazala battle, then completely saving Eighth Army's bacon when they're retreat in full retreat. I mean, it absolutely stops the the Panzer Army Africa's kind of um, from catching up and overtaking Eighth Army as it's retreating back to the Alamein line. And then at Alam Halfa, you see it play a decisive role in hammering um, Rommel's Panzers in their you know Rommel's last attack in the desert. Certainly in Egypt, anyway, and and then the RAF plays an absolutely vital role in the Battle of Alamein. So much so that even Montgomery admits it 
you know, he, he, he is very, very big in his praise of the RAF and the Desert Air Force particular. And what is very interesting is when one does look at, at personal testimonies of Germans and Italians, particularly in the Battle of the Alamein, all they do is go on about air power. It's, it's absolutely amazing. They just go on and on about it. We were bombed again. Yet again, we were bombed. Um, you know, and the number of sort of Stukas and 109s that are coming over and hassling 8th Army is just absolutely is nothing compared to what um, the Desert Air Force are doing. And they're doing it round the clock as well. So yeah, they're yeah. providing daytime well, close air support. But, and also, and then RF Middle East is then coming over their Wellingtons and kind of, you know, um, b But is it not stuff. also because Montgomery has, has, has figured that what you have to do is join it all together? Y- you yes. Can't have the, you can't have the tanks herring off on their own and you can't have the infantry trying to keep up somehow and that the artillery fire plans aren't, coded into what everyone's doing and everyone needs to talk to everyone and that really is that's a thing he under he really yeah he really gets mm. and that the that actually the air force isn't a separate fiefdom it's actually part of the same effort and that um you know i mean it, 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 it is interesting that at the end of the first world war the RAF are paired, you know, or not the end, but towards the end of the first world, they're paired off to do their own, to become their own thing and have their own structures, their own way of looking at stuff. And then the army have to develop the army air corps because, because actually they need to be able to talk directly to some people, yeah. you know, that, 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 and that, and that putting the two tent, tents next to each other, are giving you a huge clue that maybe the RAF being off, being its own force isn't necessarily the brightest idea. Yeah. I mean, which, which, which might upset REF listeners, but 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 that maybe that these things being integrated is is too important, you know, uh, to have been overlooked. I mean, it's kind of amazing that 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 has to happen. Yeah, it is sort of a, it is sort of a, you know, it's like it's like any um, innovation that's on reflection or in retrospect completely obvious. Yeah, but that but that it, that they have to do that is sort of staggering, really. Um, uh, that, that and it takes someone going. Well, I think your tent should be next to my tent. Oh, yeah, yeah, God. no, it's amazing. What, what were you all thinking before that, you muppets? Anyway, um. <laughs> but but it is amazing, and it's a an amazing place. It's you know, if you ever get a chance, it's really worth going because well. you, you know because you always talk about the sort of Mitteria Ridge and the Ruwaisat yep. Ridge and all this kind of stuff, and you kind of think, well, what is that in the Alamhalfer Ridge, of course? And you think, well, yep. what, what does that mean? You know, what is a ridge? You know, is, you know, when I think of a ridge, I think of something that's sort of, you know, 500, 600 feet, you know, sticking up in the air yeah. or whatever. And, yeah. and it's not, it's it's really, really small. I mean, you, you can be on the kind of Ruwaisat Ridge and not even know you're on it. But, but, yeah, it's all but quite what, slight, isn't it? It's slight, yeah, but, but, but suddenly when you're on the top of it, you suddenly go, ah, right, I get it. Because yeah. suddenly you can see for miles where before your, your, um, your, your viewing window was actually quite short. And, and yeah. so it, it's because you do read about in the desert where people literally go, they, they go round a corner and suddenly that the enemy's right there on top of them. They haven't yeah. seen them because of these subtle folds. That's right. And that the, they're tripping over each other, um, even though there's no apparent cover. Yeah. Um, uh, in the way there is in, you know, in Italy or North Africa or any, in fact, anywhere else in the world. It you can still be tucked away in a fold in the desert that no one ever sees you in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's amazing. Um, anyway. Well, the, the, but you on our on our, yeah go on. go on go on Jim. Well, I was going to say so you know sort of a, you've been doing sort of, sort of um, your universal carrier it's obviously a, yes. a, a key feature of the Dave <laughs> Army in the Western <laughs> Desert. You've been busy. Well, everywhere they were everywhere, weren't they? Wait, Literally wait, everywhere. Right. The carrier, yeah. yeah. It does look yeah, amazing. Um, your 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 current project, it's, though. 
It's coming along nicely. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, nice it, to see you, you know, grow up and, and mature in your modelling <laughs> over this <laughs> in, in COVID. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, um, I'm, I'm enjoying doing it. It was meant to be a short build, but it, um, I've been doing it sort of 10 minute stages a day rather yeah. than. Um, well, I've been really enjoying the films. I've got to say. Yeah. And, well, um, and the little the little figures are good, and and I think we're gonna. I think I'm gonna do Peter Caddick Adams because I've got a bloke. That I think looks, <laughs> well, Peter Caddick Adams like as he was as a twenty year old subaltern. Yes, was what, what, what 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 regiment was Peter in? What was I think he? He was in the Staffordshire Yeomanry. Okay, wonderful, brilliant. Something like that. He's he's up in staffs or, or what's that other one? But I've got this staff? guy in a duffel. I've got a guy in a duffel coat. He's got a, he's got a green beret at the moment. But I'll I'll redo the beret and I'll paint his moustache off and he'll turn into Peter. <laughs> well, he'll be absolutely thrilled about that. But also, I just can't get over all the all the sort of other stuff, the aging palettes and the kind of you know, the, yeah, the, sort of the clobber that can go with it. Yeah, well, I because the thing is, I was trying to sort of keep to just the just the Tamir stuff when I first started this because that's what I used to use when I was a kid and I was being nostalgic but then you 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 just sort of you just have to I mean it's the internet isn't it you have a little look and you think god that rust paint looks good and if I use that as this and 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 combine all these techniques but what I'm not do what I've not done is watched any actual tutorials myself and no. learned these things it's all stuff I've been figuring out for myself That's and then isn't it well, yeah, and you want them to look. The, I want them to look the way I want them to look, rather than like uh, the yeah. way someone else might do them. Anyway, I mean, it's it's fun, and there's going to be a lot of booze on the Universal Carrier. That's yeah, the, quite uh, right too. Quite right too. Because we have ways independent company Universal Carrier, and I think <laughs> I'm going to put Sherman Yeomanry uh, decals on it. But I, I need or or guards armoured. I can't decide. I need to. I need to fight. I've got loads and loads and loads of transfers that I bought. Um, in April, I found a site in America where he does them all. He does absolutely everybody's wow. markings. So I'll, I'll pick something. Anyway, and what's happened? What's um, happened to the models of you and me? Um, well, they're nearly done. They're nearly finished. Um, uh, they had mud applied to them yesterday. Um, there's a little <laughs> bit of film. They'll, they'll crop up again in the film. Uh, and then there's a bridge that this is all going to a broken, shattered bridge. This is oh, all going to be sat upon. But I need to find a way of mounting the bridge and then doing the water. So um, th- that's going to take some some figuring out as well. Brilliant. Uh, but you know, it's nice to have a it's nice to have a way to pass the time during lockdown too, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, and so, and what's your beef about aircraft? Because they're just you just can't make them muddy enough. They're just too di- they're too difficult. They're too they're too they tend to be more pristine than uh, right. I, what I like about the tanks is that is that they've been they're left out in the rain and they're sort of covered in filth and muck and oil stains and the planes are always a little bit. I mean, you still you do see pictures of sort of scuzzy planes, but they're never quite as scuffed and and foul as uh, as uh, say a brain going carrier, which is not a tank, of course. That's the thing everyone needs to remember. It's not a tank. Um, after last week's Twitter um, uh, argument that I caused, it's not a tank. That was very um, funny. I, I did well, enjoy that. It's not it's a, self, it's a, a quite nice to observe God, from a, a distance as well. It's an Abbott. It's a self-propelled gun. It's not a fucking tank. Anyway, um, what I what I do need to say is thank you all for your lovely comments about our extra edition of the podcast this weekend. To remember for, to mark Remembrance Sunday, um, uh, it was fabulous to chat with Glenn Presser, uh, uh, former historian of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. I thought that was a, a, an amazing chat. Um, yeah, really, and, he's, really, and really, he's just a really nice guy. It would be good to get him to talk yeah. about the Navy at some point. because Yes, yeah, yeah. We, that book's we, we very always good. say, we go, God, we never do enough on the Navy. And we don't do enough on yeah. the Navy. So, no. you know, it would be, no. it would be good Having to do that. Having just wanged on about Alamein for 15 minutes, you're quite right. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, but if you didn't get a chance to listen this weekend, do try to catch up. Glenn, Glenn was a fabulous guest, and it will open your eyes to the story of the CWGC. Yeah, that was he good, used wasn't it? a phrase. He, he that phrase he used from the, oh, the, the mother of the seventeen-year-old so killed in Normandy. I mean, into the mosaic of victory, our most precious piece was laid. It was absolutely heartbreaking. I, um, what was lovely as well was yesterday when we. Um, because uh, this is for this is for Tuesday, this is for tomorrow, Tuesday, isn't it? So when we put it out on Sunday, um, the reaction was very, very nice uh, to see, and people sharing their stories and stories of um, uh, the of the CWGC sites they visit and all that sort of stuff, and, and mm. what it means to people. And um, uh, uh, what I really liked as well is we didn't get in, you know, and Glenn alluded to it briefly. We didn't get into the poppy debate because I don't think the poppy debate is a debate. I think it's um, a series of uh, tedious postures and um, it was nice to not even go near there and to talk about the history of the thing. Because yeah. it's, it is, it is really, really interesting that the, the, you know, the gear shift mm. in the first world war from soldiers being the scum of the earth that no one cared about and Tommy Atkins being, you know, reviled and, and, and that Kipling idea of everyone hating Tommy, Tommy Atkins until he's required and how the, how that change came about. I think that was really, really, that's the, the sort of fascinating thing and sort of the, you know, another example of the First World War and and the wars of the 20th century literally changing everything, literally changing how we think about ourselves, our relationships with government, our society, you know, what society can ask of you and what it, you know, which is after all a question doing the rounds at the moment, you know, what can the government ask of us? Um, uh, and if wearing a mask is all you're being asked to do, that feels to me like a bare minimum. But there we go. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To, to well, get... it is in the big scheme of things, isn't it? I mean, I thought it was really interesting, and, and I really enjoyed the little um, extract of spite you did. Um, and I and I love that poem by Keith Douglas. Oh, it's it's, a, it's, it's yeah, absolutely it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But but then someone on Twitter, I think he was called at db twenty something. He yeah. he sent us a link over to um, Eisenhower uh, with um, visiting yeah. visiting. Um, the Omaha Beach, you know, the one at Colville, the cemetery at Colville, the big cemetery at Colville in, in 1964. And yeah. he, Ike just spoke so brilliantly about it. And he said, you know, that, yeah. that day, 6th of June was the day my son graduated from West Point and, and he came out and joined the war and he made it. And I've now got lots of lovely grandchildren, you know, and I look yeah. around here and I just think of all those boys that lost that didn't make it. And I thought it was really, really moving. But it also got me thinking about... Um, uh, I, I started just remembering that 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 essay by Ernie Pyle um, yeah. in San Pietro in in early 1944, um, when he says, "I was at the foot of the mule trail the night they brought Captain Wasco down," yeah. and it's just it's probably one of the most famous bits of reportage from the war. Uh, and yeah, and I was thinking about Ernie Pyle, and and I've been I've been rereading him a little bit recently because. I always end up sort of writing about him a bit in in my books. Yes, but he I also always crops up. He crops up because, but because he was just so brilliant. I mean, yeah. anyone who hasn't read Ernie Pyle's writing, I really, really urge you to do it. And you can you can buy the books, but uh, sort of Kindle editions. But you can see some of his famous essays online. You can find them really easily. But he really was the guy who started that whole a complete sea change of how people write about war. And, and it's another big shift in the same way that the Commonwealth War Graves, you know, or the Imperial um, War Graves Commission yeah. was, you know, and suddenly sort of egalitarianising kind of death on the battlefield. In the yeah. same way, he's doing that about writing about the war and reporting about the war. Yeah. 
And he is this really interesting character because he's, I think he's only 44 or 45 when he's, when he's killed by a machine gun bullet on Okinawa in April 1945, or May 1945. Anyway, right yeah. at the very end of the end of the war. But he's sort of, you know, he looks a lot older. He looks 10 years older. He's bald, he's grey, he's small, he smokes too much, he's deeply neurotic. Yeah. Um, yeah. He gets divorced from his wife, Jerry, then decides he needs to marry her again. Um, he has bouts of depression. He's got, you know, the black dog really badly. He's got yeah. what we would call in, 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 I suppose, today, serious mental health issues. Um, he's got a, a, a pathological fear of failure. And yet... He's absolutely beloved by by the guys, the troops, and all the, yeah. all the servicemen that he he comes across, whether yeah. they be on ships, whether they be at air, you know airfields, whether they be at the battlefront. And it's interesting because you know he starts off as a journalist writing for the Scripps Towers newspapers. I think they have something like three hundred newspapers across the US. Yeah. And originally he's an aviation correspondent, and then they give him a kind of wide brief in the mid thirties to just go around and record what you see of everyday folk in the US. Yeah. And it's quite sort of whimsical is not the quite quite the word, but what he does is he, he it's just very personal. It's very kind of sort of like having a conversation with the guy next door. Uh, yeah. And it's sort of, you know, and I was down in Des Moines and I bumped into this guy and this guy said to me and you know, and and it, it got me thinking about such and such and it's all that kind of tone of voice. And then yeah. he just transferred that to the war. So he gets sent over to yeah. London in the Blitz and does his reports back from London. Then he goes over to North Africa in, in Operation Torch in 1942. And then he's there in Sicily. Then he's there in southern Italy. He's one of the kind of chosen few for D-Day. Goes all the way through northern, you know, um, northwest Europe and then eventually goes out to the Pacific. And he becomes so famous, and his writings are so famous, that everyone wants to meet him. Everyone wants to be in his one of his columns, because he always name-checks everyone. So he goes, so he goes you know, I, 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 there's this, I remember when I was doing my Normandy book, there was this amazing description um, of the capture of Cherbourg, and he joins the, the, the 9th Infantry Division. And he's with a, um, he's with a, um, a lieutenant, a lieutenant, I should say, called Orion Shockley. And he asked him about his name and how unusual it is. And you know, Lieutenant Shockley hails from wherever he hails from, Missouri or whatever it was, and names the town and everything. And lo and behold, Shockley then subsequently wrote his own memoir too, so he could sort of marry them up, which was quite interesting. But, you know, he, he, he just writes with such incredible sensitivity and just such incredible kind of evocation of the moment and what he's witnessing and the mood and the sights and the smells. There's just no one better. But you suddenly see where all those post-war writers, like yeah, Cornelius yeah, yeah. Ryan, who was a yeah. war correspondent, Irish war correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, I think, um, yeah. where they all get it from. You know, it all goes back to Ernie Pyle. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, we need to take a short break while I brush the salt off my self-propelled gun. And if you don't get the reference, you haven't been watching my model-making masterclass, which I'll tell you about <laughs> after the break. We'll be back in two swishes of a rust-covered brush. Uh, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. It's not a tank, right? It's not a tank. It is a self-propelled gun. By the way, um, what we've been doing, um, if you've missed them, is I've been doing a series of little films of, of me making uh, a little Bren gun carrier, universal carrier, Mark II. 
um, uh, little films of how I do it. So they're not, it's not, we've called it a masterclass on Twitter and I'm, I'm slightly uh, a blush at the notion. It's how I, how I like to go about it. And it's the weathering. It's making it filthy and look, hmm. look like it's been left out in the rain or, or it's had to drive through some muddy gorge to deliver James and I, because it's going to be a little model of James and I. Um, and loads oh, of we're booze. in the carrier, are we? Oh, we're in the carrier. Oh, that is exciting. Yeah, that's, yeah. Okay. that's the idea. We're in the carrier with some booze and yeah. I'm going to do the bridge yeah. and the yeah. diorama yeah. with the bridge and all that. Um, uh, so uh, that's that's on the at We Have Ways pod. It's been up with there. We've done five or so so far. There'll be seven or eight or even nine or ten, depending on how long it takes me to finish the darn thing. They're great um, fun. They're really good. It's good fun. It's good fun to do as well. Um, uh, filming while painting is proving quite difficult, which you will, there'll be, I think one of the clips that cu- is coming up, there's me cursing, having to do both. I don't, the other thing to remind uh, uh, people of, um, not regular listeners, is the advantage of joining our Patreon. Because last week on Thursday, we had an amazing evening on Thursday evening, um, like the greatest dinner party uh, <laughs> conversation uh, possible. Um, th- a huge thanks to the 630 people who joined us live on the internet as we did a wild 90-minute improv of Second World War history with James, myself sort of chairing, and the brilliant Peter Caddy Adams, and live from the former SS headquarters outside Warsaw, Dr Alex Ritchie. Uh, that, was a, that was a cracking night, wasn't it? Was a lot of fun, yeah. It was really good. And, and you know, it sort of helps that we all, we're all old mates because... We all kind of sort of know, we all sort of know each other, and and you get that. So it, for me, it was literally just sitting around with with three mates having yeah. a bottle of wine. You know, it was yeah. it was great fun. Um, but brilliant. it was nice hearing good... people's comments on 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 the side as well. Yeah, and some good questions. And um, of course, Peter incurred the wrath of Vladimir Putin. Um, uh, <laughs> oh yes, he kept having uh, a few internet issues, yes. didn't he? I mean, I, I have to say, Peter's comic timing is pretty strong. You know, he's, he makes some crack about Putin. Ninety seconds later, he's off air. His internet yeah. crashes, and the FSB come and ran and replace him with a double. Um, but he still looked immaculate. <laughs> yes, of course he did. In his cravat, right? So, um, so if you if you fancy a slice of that particular action, the live casts are on our Patreon. Um, you can find us. We have ways making you talk Patreon. Um, uh, and there's loads of other stuff with that audio books um, uh, and a discussion as well um, from our regulars, because there's a core of regular independent company members. Um, those of you who know, know, know those, those of you who don't, maybe now you do. OK, so let's do a couple of questions, because you know what? The thing we get, we have a sort of outline. It's, calling it a script is probably too strong. We have a sort of outline and it said brief chat at the top. And that was the Alamein, quarter of an hour about Alamein, by the way, the brief chat. When we were just supposed to sort of say, how are you getting on? Are those tomatoes that you brought for lockdown ripe yet? Okay, so question, (laughs) we have a question for us. Uh, Well, no, first of all, a preposterous message from Tony Bean via Twitter. Hello, Alan James, loving the podcast. Funny thing, I started listening on Spotify and without knowing it, I was playing the episodes at one and a half times normal speed. (laughs) I got to episode 21 without realising. I actually thought you were... um, you speak and think at that speed like you are on drugs. Oh, it's the perverting edition of We Have Ways. Al, your laugh at one and a half, at 1.5 <laughs> speed is extraordinary. I urge you to try it. Listening to Arnhem series now at normal speed, thank goodness. Yeah, <laughs> God, that well, must be a bit bit frenetic. Well, what is, but you, what do you slow down, sound like at one and a half speed? You pretty sound normal because there's the, the beer, beer 52 commercials. No, you sounded as though, as you like beer. James Holland here, do you like beer? Right. Okay. So a question. 
Um, from Graham Hutton, and this has come to us via Twitter. Um, Hi, love your podcast. My granddad was captured at saint valery en cur early in the war, and I've always wanted to know more about it. I remember him telling me that he watched the last boat leave as it was bombed, and it was bombed as, as it left, and the sea was red. Yet the books on it say there was no evacuation. Can you shed any light? Yeah, sure. And and early on in the war, it was actually the 12th of June, 1940. Um, yeah, so what happened was um, um, because the <laughs> the French Corps wouldn't let 51st Highland Division, under whom they were um, subordinate, um, pull back before it was too late, um, Rommel's 7th Panzer Division cut in behind them to the coast north of Le Havre and they were forced back to um, saint Valery. Um, where they had absolutely no choice but but to surrender. Now, the hope was that overnight of the 11th and 12th, the Royal Navy would come in and evacuate them, and they were offshore, uh, and that was all good. But there was an absolutely... Um, there was a pea super to beat all pea supers, and they literally just couldn't get in. They couldn't see what they were doing. Um, so they had to turn around, and the 51st Island Division had to um, had to surrender, and uh, General Fortune had to hand over... To Rommel. Yes, there's that photo of him looking absolutely um, gutted, isn't it? Yeah, just spitting steaming. and furious and yeah. yeah, steaming. So that was why, basically. So there was an effort. There was an effort to pick them up, and I think a handful of people were picked up on the 11th, if I remember rightly. But obviously, the vast majority of the uh, of, of the 51st Island Division were, were were captured. And it's and it's one of those things that they felt abandoned, and they weren't really. I mean, what everyone forgets is that the reason the 51st Highland Division were um, were fighting was because they'd been holding a stretch of the um, Maginot Line, um, and so they were south of um, um, the of German the River flanking Somme, um, uh, during you know when when the German Army Group A swept in south of the main thrust. They were south of that, so they were cut off from the rest of the British Expeditionary Force, moved over from the uh, Maginot Line to kind of help be one of the one of the divisions in the in the French line for Case Red, which was the the next bit, the next German operation to sweep over sweep southwards and kind of clear up the rest of France, and um, and so they were there, and you know we were still an ally of France until France surrendered, and that was what our job was. Um, and and there's always this thing we were abandoned by Churchill, and they they weren't abandoned by Churchill at all. Um, they were doing what they were supposed to do, which was fight alongside the French um, as an ally. It's just that the French they were, didn't they were ro- very they were well. on road. There was a division on rotation into the Maginot Line, wasn't there? And it That's was right, their yeah. turn, basically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's also the First Armoured Division, which hadn't really been deployed at this point, and, and they managed. And, and they were they were sort of in reserve, and they were further further eastward, so they were able to kind of pull back across the Seine, and that was all fine. And they all kind of sort of evacuated. Um, uh, further south in Normandy, but um, that is why they're all put in the bag. Um, okay, Jern von Kampenhausen, which is a We Have Ways gold star name, you get instant platinum uh, recognition for that. Jern yeah. von Kampenhausen. Yeah, that's a really Hi, guys. Name. Hi, guys. Very great podcast. Please keep up the good quality. There's a request. That I sounds like, read... so, like new movie film, doesn't it? <laughs> Have you seen it yet? It's very no, funny. is it funny? Um, I, yeah, it is, yeah. I recently read the book, The Real Heroes of Telemark, by Ray Mears about Operation Grouse. Was it really such a game changer as it is claimed in the book? Cheers, uh, Yearn. No. Yes. <laughs> no. No, you go first. Yes. <laughs> it, it I wasn't... would argue. It, I would argue it was because it just put a stop to it. It capped it. There would be, from there on, there was no way back 
for a German uh, um, atomic bomb. There was no way of it ever happening. It capped it. It was like they capped the well um, uh, of, of the thing. That's, that's what I'd say. I mean, you'd, you'd, you're going to argue they were never that serious about it. The fact that even the mere fact they're relying on Norwegian heavy water shows they aren't serious about it themselves. That, um, that Germany hasn't got this thing on its feet and they're spending the money on the V weapons anyway. Um, and you've got a diversion of effort into um, all sorts of German solutions that they can't afford anyway. And you could argue that the atom scientists aren't serious about it too. And all the clever people have buggered off to America. Have I have I got that right? <laughs> yeah, but that's that's quite a convincing <laughs> argument against. But but there's one more killer yes! line, which is that in July 1942, they've already agreed to down downgrade the atomic project and basically not give. Yeah, it yeah, funding. yeah, yeah. But it caps it. That's what I mean. Is this this means that 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 even if they, if they change their minds after that, it's just too much, too much to do. But the heavy water is never going to do, never going to help them anyway. I mean, the the, the point is in July 1942, and this this you know the, it, it's first launched in. October 1942, and then they have to wait the whole winter, basically, until I think it's February 1943, if I remember rightly, or January, I can't remember when it, when it actually is. But, 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 because, and it's the first ever glider operation that the British mount, and it's a complete fiasco. And the commander of the, um, the, um, uh, glider pilots regiment gets captured and, or killed. Um, all the, all the, the glider troops get killed or, or captured, and they're executed in woods outside Oslo. So, but, 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 the um but the team then are are the the um SOE team of Norwegian basic commandos effectively that uh, they then have to spend the whole winter out in these huts on the mountains kind of surviving off kind of you know damp moss and all that kind of stuff um uh, and it, yeah and, but they love they, all that those people yeah 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 those but kind it is, of it is, love all it that. is a brilliant brilliant episode of astonishing endurance and they do pull off the 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 damage to the heavy water plant you know it's it just works perfectly but it doesn't alter the fact that in july 1942 at a meeting with speer and goering they decide that they are not going to back the atomic project that it's that it's too fraught there isn't enough money it's too complicated it hasn't got much chance of succeeding and therefore they're they're you know it's it, it's all over so to that extent the kind of the whole effort was sort of a bit of a waste of time but we didn't know that at the time uh, and and it doesn't detract from the fact that it's still an amazing operation, and it's incredibly important that you're constantly harrying the Germans all the time wherever they have possessions to keep them on their toes and keep troops. I mean, you know, it's like three hundred thousand troops in Norway alone uh, in nineteen forty-five. So you know, and and all this plays a part in that. So I would say it's a re- it's really it's it. It was a really, really important operation, and it also showed that what could be done. And it's also an amazing uh, operation of collaboration between the Norwegians and the British, I think. Um, and uh, it was truly extraordinary by all those, you know, everyone involved was properly heroic and, and properly brave and, and showed extraordinary endurance and all the rest of it to kind of sort of rival Scott of the Antarctica and all the rest of it. But... Was it a really such a game changer as it is claimed in the book? The answer was no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, they cap, they cap, they cap the well. It means that Spear can't change his mind, and I mean, it is, it is interest, it is interesting that that that, that the Nazis, that, that they, the Nazi government just decides they can't do it, that um, the atom bomb is beyond them, um, because because you know that you know bloody well they'd have used it. Um, uh, they wouldn't have hesitated. In fact, they'd have probably not bothered testing it. They'd have used the first one that they thought might work, 
um, wouldn't they? I mean, this, well, they this did the explode thing. that dirty bomb in because um, there were two rival camps. There was the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute people who were broadly anti-Nazi, or certainly not Nazi. And then there was the other guy. And I can't remember what he was called. Um, it was called Kurt. Something beginning with D. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but he was he was he was a rabid Nazi, um, and. I think there were only 93 people involved in the entire project on two different camps. So you had two camps, each of about kind of 40 each, 45 each. Um, one of the in, in the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute and the other one not. Um, and, you know, when you think about the Manhattan Project and you think 120,000 people involved in kind of untold billions, it sort of, you know, it makes you realise just sort of how far off they are from ever achieving it. But but the the, the Nazi camp do set off a dirty bomb i think it's on the 3rd of march 1945 and they use um local uh, concentration camp prisoners to see the blast effect and it does create a mushroom cloud and it does you know create a huge blinding flash of light and all that kind of stuff because they are using kind of sort of really really uh um incredibly volatile uh, um uh, um what do you call it elements involved um but it doesn't cause an awful lot of damage well, there we go. I so James and I disagree on that one. Uh, that's that's excellent. They're definitely a very important <laughs> operation. Also, there's nothing there's nothing those sort of commandos love more than being left on the side of a mountain over the winters and eating their own eating their own toe fungus. Right? Okay. No, that is true. Um, um, one last thing. Um, Alan Mills says really fantastic podcast. I love every minute of it. Um, I joined the Royal Navy in 1976, and I'm still serving. Wow! Spending wow. all my career on minesweepers. Gosh, that's a long time. So to answer your question about having someone on the bow of the ship shooting at buoyant mines, that's that's old school. This guy, he has listened to all of them. We talked about that ages ago about yeah. having to sit on the front with a rifle and shoot mines. Um, the drill was to sink them, not detonate them, leaving them on the seabed and no threat to shipping. Until now, of course, as we have 250, 500 pounds of unstable high explosives that are constantly being brought up by shipping boats. It's believed that there is still about 75% of the ordnance laid in both wars unaccounted for. Well, holy moly. Jeepers! 75%. That's a lot of explosive. I mean, surely it becomes inert after a while. I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about it. No, I don't think he does, does it? There's that bit in Finding Nemo, isn't there, where the. They go across yes, the... that's right. Yeah, yeah. The sharks find the old sub in the mines. Anyway, anyway, that's all from us today. Um, thank <laughs> you note. so much for listening. On that note, um, thanks again if you listened at the weekend to the uh, uh, the Remembrance Day edition. Um, the uh, models will st- are going to keep making that brain carrier. Don't you worry. And the scenario for it to sit in. And uh, um, we'll hopefully see you on the live stream on Thursday as well. Those of you who are patrons. Um, thanks very much. Thanks again. Cheerio. Cheerio.